Open this week, keep your ears open for Jesus to show up in ways that you don't expect uh, and it might surprise you, all right? Uh, another, hi- just highlighting again too, we've talked about the purple sheet and uh, again, I, I spent the last few weeks and the next few weeks I want to continue to highlight, there's a couple check boxes on there. One is for some, if you are in the situation where you're not sure yet, if you're a follower of Jesus, you're not sure even what that means, you're not sure if you're in or out or whatever that means, if it's even important to be in or out. But if that's you, we don't, want, we don't want to assume anything, and we, want you to, we invite you to a conversation with Dan or I or other people, and even friends you came with, uh, to ask that question. If I even made that initial commitment to follow Jesus? And the second one, which I think was already mentioned, is uh, some of you may be followers of Jesus or made that choice, that commitment, but you haven't taken the next step where Jesus commands us, and that's a heavy word, but that's what he, he commands us to be baptized. There's a box in there you can check, too, for a conversation about that and what that means and stuff, too. So I just want to start off with that. So, hey, the topic or the initial topic today is false advertising, all right? We've all been a part of, we've all bought things and done things and stayed at hotels that picture says one thing and reality is another, all right? Here's the first one. All right, here's the picture. Anybody bought one of those? Here's the picture. Now, when you buy that now, if you're parents and you have little kids, you know it never comes out that way, all right? Here's the reality. All right? 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 Those of you who bought these, you know, your kids say, oh, that'd be so cool. Backyard swim. All right, next one. Here's the picture. Three kids in a pool. You know, great day. Beautiful. You know, whatever. Here's the reality. All right? Now we go to food. Here's a picture. Here's the Big Mac, how they advertise. Not Big Mac. I'm sorry. Whopper. How they advertise it. Here's the reality, what you get in your little bag. All right? Next one, Taco Bell. Here's the picture. I mean, the meat and then the salad and the cheese, and it's all perfectly on there, but here's the reality. It's kind of stuffed in there, right? Now, how about vacation, all right? Here's, now, notice, Hyatt Hotel, Capitol Building, Washington, D.C. I see that in the ad. I want to go to that hotel and walk to the Capitol Building. Reality. See the Capitol way down there? All right, trick photographer, whatever it is, but we've all done, we've all, you all, you all, you've all gone to places on vacation, you're like, well, I, that's not what the picture said. And it's kind of like, you know, whatever they call it, trick photography or whatever. Last one. Here's the hope. Here's the advertisement. This quiet beach, you're going to kind of enjoy life at the beach, finally relax. But here's the reality. When you get there, it's crazy, right? How many times have we done those things? You know, false advertising, or at least let's call it misleading advertising. Let's not accuse these institutions of lying to us, but misleading and here's the question I want to pose to us. Is God ever guilty of that? Have you been told a perception of what following Jesus was supposed to make your life look like, but then the reality starts to fade in from the previous slide, and you're like, that's not at all what the box top says. That's not what the travel bureau brochure says. That's not what I was told by this pastor, this church, my friend, my mom, my dad, whatever. That's not what I want Jesus to be all about, Right? We have, the, we have the nice packaged advertisement, but then the reality doesn't seem to match, and then we start wondering, okay, do I need to question God then? Is, is God misleading me? And, and I think most of us have had times where we've kind of wondered if we missed something along the way. All right? What have you been doing? Here goes the next slide. We've been doing a series from the book of Revelation, all right? It's Revelation, not Revelations, all right? The book of Revelation. It's the last book of the Christian New Testament. 
And it starts off simply with a line. This is a revelation of Jesus Christ. This is an unveiling. The curtain gets pulled back. You're going to see him. He's going to reveal himself to you. And what we've been talking about these last number of weeks is asking you what we just did. To every day, pray this simple prayer. Jesus, reveal yourself to me. You know, I do it at the same time every morning. I sit downstairs at a certain place where I drink coffee. I pray for my kids that way. And I think some of you, I know some of you do the same thing. Some of you may do it when you're driving your car and something just reminds you and you think, okay, Jesus, reveal yourself to me right now. Reveal yourself to, you know, my kids. Reveal yourself to the, reveal yourself to the person who I don't really like and maybe you can reveal yourself in like a God of wrath kind of way. No, no, just reveal yourself to all kinds of people. Name them. And that it, it takes you 15 seconds to pray for two people. And if you miss a day, it's not a big deal. God doesn't have a check mark up there. But just reveal yourself to me. And one of the things, one of the verses I've asked everybody to focus on, even memorize, is uh, what Jesus said in John about who gets to see Jesus, who gets to have him revealed to us. Why don't you read this with me? Everybody out loud with me, all right? Whoever has my commands and obeys them, he is the one who loves me. He who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love him and show myself to him. You obey what you already know Jesus has said to you. Jesus says, I will reveal myself to you. So if you're saying you want to see Jesus, but you're holding on to some things you're not quite convinced you want to obey Jesus in, you're not going to see him. You won't. And if you're obeying him, and as much as you understand what it means to obey Jesus, you're in a good position to Jesus to just walk right by and show himself to you. All right, you obey, you show that you love him, if you obey and that you love him in those actions, he will reveal himself. He promised that. He promised that. He didn't say it might happen. He promised that. All right? So we've been talking about Revelation chapter 2. Go to the next one. And it's about the uh, churches. John. Okay, John wrote the book of Revelation. He was on an island in the little uh, yellow square. I couldn't think of the word. 96 AD, this would have been 60 years or so after Jesus died in his resurrection. John, a lifelong friend of Jesus, a disciple of Jesus, and, and had followed Jesus all these years after Jesus' death and resurrection. John is on the Isle of Patmos, it's in, off of modern-day Turkey. It was a, basically a place where you were sent in exile. It was like an island prison because those in the authorities didn't like the fact they kept talking about Jesus. Part of Revelation, the chapters 2 and 3, he's writing, he's told by Jesus in this vision, and again, weird meter may be high there, but it's reality. Jesus talks to us in all kinds of ways. He's told to write a letter to each of these different seven churches, and that's modern-day Turkey. All right, Those, this is a real place. These have all places have been excavated. We know they existed. All right, this is not... This is not mythological studies here. Last week, we t- and, and I go to the next slide, I showed you too. That's about the kind of geographic area we're talking about. Again, just to help you realize these are real people, ordinary people. These were ordinary churches. They were not full of super saints. It was like full of people like you and me. Ordinary people who do our best to follow Jesus but stumble along the way. John's writing them to encourage them. Today we're going to talk about Smyrna. Last week we talked about Ephesus. And if you remember, most of these letters that the seven churches start off where Jesus says, I'm going to encourage you about something, affirm something you're doing really good. Now I have a complaint, Jesus says. I'm going to challenge you on some area of your life. And then he makes the promise, if you overcome, if you win in this area of your life, uh, you will have have all that I've promised you in terms of life, all right? Smyrna is different, and we're going to see that in a minute. The letter to Smyrna is unique among the seven churches, all right? Now, Smyrna, 
uh, was a town. It's, it's actually the only, current-day Turkey, the name, the name of the town is called Izmir, I-Z-M-I-R, still exists today. At that time, it was a town of about 200,000 people. And uh, you can see by its location, if you, if, you didn't know, if you go up to the left coast, it goes into the Black Sea. It was a big port town, cosmopolitan area, a lot of stuff passing through. They had big theaters, coliseums, and all things like that. So that's Smyrna. Now, go to the next one here. We're going to jump back for a second. Let's hold on to Smyrna. Hold on to 96 AD Smyrna. And now I want you to, we're going to jump back to John about 65 years prior, or 63 or 60 or so years prior. So now John's back to being like 20 years old, maybe 19. We don't know how old John was. He could have been 16 or 17. All right, if you are ages 16 to 20, hold your hand up. All right. This, again, this was the age of Jesus, of John, and some of the disciples when they began to follow Jesus. All right. So never discount yourself thinking you're too young or not yet ready to follow Jesus in pretty radical ways. All right. This is a conversation that John, again, who wrote Revelation, had with Jesus. And again, we're going to get back to Smyrna, but I'm going to do a little introductory stuff, kind of look at John's life so when we understand what he wrote to Smyrna, it's going to hold a different meaning to us, all right? James and John were brothers. They were actually, uh, they were called the sons of thunder because they seemed that they probably were kind of energetic. I don't know what my, the guess is. They were kind of ugh, energetic kind of guys and maybe a little loud. I don't know. But one time, and this is, this is interesting. Jesus had just got done telling them, hey, I'm going to, the son of man who's talking to himself, I'm going to go to Jerusalem. They're going to arrest me, mock me, spit on me, beat me, and kill me. And you kind of wonder if John and James even heard all that. Because the very next thing it says, then they asked Jesus, and I've kind of summarized the text. They asked Jesus, teacher, we want you to do us a favor. All right, this is two brothers. Jesus says, what's your request? James and John, we want, you, we want to sit in places of honor next to you. You know, when you become king of Jerusalem and Israel and get that cool throne and that cool little hat they call a crown, we want right-hand, left-hand seats. We want to be on your board, but we want to be the top dogs. And then Jesus says, you don't know what you're asking because they, they didn't get it. Like a lot of times we don't, I don't. Are you able to drink from the bitter cup of suffering I am about to drink? Are you able to drink from the bitter cup of suffering I am about to drink? If you want the places of honor, first question, are you able to drink from the bitter cup of suffering I'm about to drink? And James and John said, oh, yes, we are able. All right, say that last line with me. Oh, yes, we are able. One more time. Oh, yes, we are able. They had no idea what they were saying, did they? No idea. So keep that in mind, all right? Now, let me trace through. I'm going to phrase just this one statement can you drink the cup? Because that's the question Jesus was asking John and James. We're focusing on John right now. And I'm going to trace through John's life up until he gets to Patmos a little bit. And I'm going to tell you a couple of accounts of things that happened. Keep in mind the question Jesus asked he and his brother, are you able to drink the cup of suffering? And they say, oh, yes. The sons of thunder, oh, yes, we are able I mean, they might have, yeah, we will, yes, you know, whatever. All right? Okay. Not too long after this event, John watches Jesus confront the Pharisees, the religious leaders at the time. The Pharisees are getting really angry at Jesus, and there's tension. I mean, they're mad. 
And you've all been in situations where somebody does or says something that violates the status quo and everybody feels this social awkwardness. But in this case, the social awkwardness is anger. And so John's kind of feeling this like, wow, this is kind of tense. Okay, John, can you drink the cup now? And John's probably like, yeah, I can. This is still kind of cool. I mean, it's cool, you know. Can you drink the cup? James and John, yeah, we can. Not long after that, John is one of the three disciples who goes with Jesus to the Garden of Gethsemane. And Jesus just got done telling them at the Last Supper that his soul was overwhelmed to the point of grief. And he just, he was, Jesus was really in agony because he knew it was coming. They, they still had no idea. Jesus goes to the Garden and he says to God, you can do all things. And, and John knows of this. He was there. We know they fell asleep, but he still knows this is what was said. He may have overheard it because we're told by the Bible, Jesus prayed this a number of times. You can do all things, God, Jesus said to God. Take this cup from me. Jesus is saying that to God. Take this cup from me. God, if there's a plan B, give it to me. It's okay to be honest with God if you don't like plan A. But then... This third part of the prayer Jesus said, which is the most important. Nevertheless, not what I will, but you will, God. I'd love you to have a different cup. I don't want to drink the cup of suffering. But if that's what you have to do, God, that's what. So John knows and he sees this. And he sees Jesus. He sees one of his really good friends and mentors in agony. And now I want to whisper in John's ear, hey, John, can you drink the cup now? I mean, if that's what it's going to feel like, can you drink it now? And John may be a little more timid. Yeah, I, I think, and James, I, I think we can. I think we can. Then the next day, John sees this best friend mentor of his die. He sees him tortured. John was one of the ones we know that was at the cross when Jesus was dying. He may have been the only one of the disciples. And so he sees his best friend up there bleeding, dying, and knows he can't do anything about it. Maybe he remembered the conversation about drinking the bitter cup, but at this point, you kind of want to shout at John, John, now can you drink the cup? This is what he meant. And John would probably say, I, I don't know. I don't know if I can drink that cup. I don't know if that's what I signed up for. And a few days later, Jesus is resurrected and he sees one of the first people that sees Jesus alive and they realize this, that the world has been turned upside down. Yes, now we can drink the cup. Yes, 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 we can drink the cup. Yeah. All right, and I'm saying this because it's like you and me. We kind of ebb and flow in our, in our intensity of following Jesus, especially when we hit difficulty and persecution and pain and suffering. Then the book of Acts kicks off. Pentecost happens, and it's like, woo, you know, excitement, drama, Holy Spirit, healing, all kinds of stuff happening. Then in John, then in Acts 4, John and the others get arrested and thrown in jail. Because again, these same religious leaders, the Pharisees didn't like what was going on. Now they're in jail, and they're in dirty, stinky, ratty jails overnight. Okay, John, now can you drink the cup? Now can you drink a cup of suffering? I mean, this is what it means, John. And John's like, and James is probably next to him in prison. Yeah, we can. We can take this. It's challenging. It's pushed our comfort zone. We can take this. Then a chapter later, 
after they're in jail and the angel lets them out of jail and they show up preaching the next day. They don't care what the authorities will do to them. So the authorities arrest them again, put them all in jail. And it's one of these passages that I think we kind of skip over certain words. But when you read it, it says, they decided to let them go. But first they had them flogged. Not fined. Flogged. We read those words and it's kind of like, I think in my mind I replaced the word fine. They were fined. Had a big hefty fine. They had a community service. No, they were flogged. (coughs) Flogged. Now, John, can you drink the cup? James, how about you? John, sons of thunder, can you drink the cup now? And maybe what? You know, catching their breath a little bit. Yeah, we can. The very next morning, they all went out preaching again. I love that. It's like, no, there's no courage like that in all the earth. I promise you that. Because they knew. And there seems to be a boldness about them that somehow is kind of going together with the suffering. And they seem to have this power. God heals through them. But again, it seems to be partnered with the suffering. John, James, can you guys drink the cup? Yes. Acts 12, maybe a few years later, we don't know exactly. John's brother James is killed by Herod with a sword. We don't know if that meant beheading, stabbing, we don't know. How many of you have brothers? All right. Your brother, you've grown up with your whole life, is now dead and you just found out about it. And he's dead because of his acknowledgement of being a follower of Jesus. Now, John, all alone, John, no brother, John, now can you drink the cup? Now can you drink the cup? I mean, maybe that came to James's mind moments before the sword came down on him. Can you drink the cup? James is probably, I, I'm, in, I'm here. Because I'm sure if they would have denied Jesus, they would have been set free. But now, John, now that your brother is dead, can you drink the cup? This is what you signed up for, John. And John's like, yeah, I can drink the cup. I can drink the cup. Maybe he says it through tears. He probably says it, I'm imagining him saying it through a boldness and a courage that's overwhelmed by tears. Yes, yes. Because they knew that suffering and power, they saw that going hand in hand. Crucifixion, resurrection, suffering and persecution, healing, lame people heal, blind people see, those go together. You cannot cut one out and take the other. You can't. So now John is in the Isle of Patmos, 50 years, 60 years later. As far as we know, most of the other disciples at this point had already been killed themselves because of their testimony of Jesus. We don't know for sure, but it's a good chance that John was the last one of the original 12. I mean, not part, you know, considering Judas, last one left. And he's lived a long life of this kind of drinking of that kind of cup. He hasn't had an easy life. He didn't spend his nights in Holiday Inn Expresses or Embassy Suites. And now, so that, that, that's where we are now. So that's John. This is this old man, probably you know, in the 70s. Now he's writing to these churches and now he's writing to Smyrna. Keep in mind, this is John's whole history. All right, here we go. Write this letter. And this is Jesus telling John, 
all right? Write this letter to the angel of the church in Smyrna. This is the message from the one who is the first and the last who is dead but is now alive. And as I said, every letter Jesus, every letter Jesus writes, that John writes, Jesus refers to himself as something he already described himself as. And now, appropriately slow, so, I am the first and the last. I'm the one who came back from life. And here's what John says to Smyrna, all right? Now, I want everybody here to be Smyrnan residents. I guess they would call them the Smyrnese. I don't know. But now you're all in Smyrna. You're, you're you know, Turkish Smyrnese people in a town of 200,000. And this is what Jesus is saying to us. I know your suffering and your poverty, but you are rich. In other words, I, I know the stuff you go through because you follow Jesus. Jesus is not just saying, I know you've made some bad financial decisions. He said, no, I know. Some of you have had horrible things happen to you because that person was attacking Jesus in you. They may not even have known it, but they were attacking Jesus in you. But you are rich, he said. I know the blasphemy of those who oppose me. I know how people talk negatively about you, not because you're a jerk, but because you follow Jesus. And people, in the end, really don't like people who follow Jesus because it exposes them. Because if you can live a life of integrity and wholeness in life, and they can't, they really want to just pull you down. Because they, they don't want to think they can be that way because they don't want to pay the cost. They say they're Jews, but they are not because the synagogue belongs to Satan. See, it was a lot of the religious Jewish people who did not follow Jesus who were basically blasting these Christians. Don't be afraid of, about what you are to suffer. Okay, this is what he's saying to us now, all right? We're the Smyrna church. The devil will throw some of you into prison to test you. You will suffer for 10 days, but if you remain faithful even when facing death, not difficulty, not financial hardship, but death, I will give you the crown of life. Stay here for a second, Chip. Now, at this point, I'm thinking of moving to Ephesus, right? I'm thinking of moving to Thyatira. I want to go to some other church. Not this church. I don't want to stay in Smyrna. Don't be afraid of what I'm about to suffer. It sounds like it's inevitable, John. Jesus, you're the one who told John it was inevitable. Yeah, it is. Sounds inevitable, doesn't it? Last part. Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he's saying to the churches. Whoever is victorious will not be harmed by the second death. In other words, you could be harmed by the first death, physical death, but you're not going to be harmed by the lack. Of, you're going to not have eternal death. You will actually be more alive than you ever thought you would. Incidentally, the word for victorious is the same Greek word where we get our word Nike. So whenever you put on your Nike tennis shoes, uh, think about when Jesus promised that we could be victorious. We could be overcomers. That's the same word. We could be Nike people. All right. We could have a little logo and just do it or whatever. I got to stop. All right. Okay. Now two things I want to highlight from what John just wrote. Okay, we're asking Jesus to reveal himself to us. What if he chooses to reveal himself to us in the suffering servant kind of way? What if we get to know Jesus more because we suffer because of Jesus? Now, you might think, okay, we live in America. I know we have some issues and problems sometimes, but we're not like in communist China. No, we're not. Should make us think about those who are and how they interpret these passages and how they understand... they. Pro they how they, I believe, know Jesus in ways we don't, and in some kind of odd way, 
I envy them. And he says, don't be afraid of what you're about to suffer. Other parts of the New Testament were even told, don't be surprised when you suffer. Peter says that in first, don't be surprised when you suffer. Don't be surprised. And Jesus said, if the world hated me, it's going to hate you. Now, please, don't have all of a sudden some kind of persecution complex and make your next door neighbor out to be Satan because um, they drove in your grass or whatever. I mean, you know what I'm saying? Don't make all of your enemies Satan right now. If you've done something that's in, in, irritated somebody just because you're, you're an irritable person, that's not Jesus, that's you. Deal with that. All right? Don't get one of these complexes where every difficulty in life you can attribute to someone else and you don't even examine your own heart first. Examine your heart first, and then you might say, you know, I think this is opposition from Satan. All right? Don't be, Jesus, Jesus, Peter says, don't, don't be surprised. And Paul, in his letter to Timothy, says, everybody who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Everyone who wants to live a life-giving, godly kind of life will suffer persecution. Will. Not maybe, might, kind of, sort of, will. Okay, can you drink the cup? Do I want to drink that cup? Don't be surprised at the fiery trials you're going through. One of the things, two things kind of hit me in this whole area. I was flipping around this week just looking for different images and icons and I came across a, a painting and it was a painting of, there were times in, ancient, in the ancient world where some of the Christians, the way they would persecute them and suffer torture and cause them to suffer would be they would do these mass crucifixions of Christians because they followed Jesus. And there was one picture, and it was like, I was doing Google Images, so there's like all these images on the screen, and then one just kind of jumped out at me. It was, it was a, a man, a dad, all right? Nail on a cross, obviously a Christian, because there were other, other crosses behind him and there's other people on them. And there was a mother holding about a four-year-old child, and the man on the cross was, was still getting put up on the cross, and this child is kissing his dad on the forehead. And I thought, that's... Can you drink the cup? I mean, that's... John saw his brother James, who didn't see him killed, but he was killed. But I, I can't imagine when families had to see loved ones tortured and murdered. But they followed Jesus and they drank the cup. And the church exploded with power. And I see that picture and I think, Jesus, I don't... Yeah, I think I can drink the cup, but you'd have to, you would have to be with me in a supernatural way for me to be that kind of person. And then I read a book a number of years ago. The name of the book is called Silence, and the author is Shaushenko Endo, I think. I think I pronounced it right. And it's a historical account, put in novel form, of persecution of Christians in Japan maybe 500 years ago, 600 years ago. And the way they would persecute the Christians is they would get a Catholic priest, because they were the primary followers of Jesus in that country, Catholic priests, missionaries, would get a Catholic priest sitting in one room, and in the room next to him, they would torture one of his church members until he recanted. And he could hear every scream, every gurgle, every shout of that person being tortured. And they simply said to the priest, all you have to do is denounce Christ and we'll stop. You know that person, you've been in their home before. You hear them crying, you hear them screaming. You can stop it. You can stop it. Just denounce Christ. And I read that book and I thought, 
Sometimes it happened with family members. They would ask a dad to announce Christ if they would just stop torturing his kid. Can you drink the cup? Would you want to drink the cup? Is that what you signed up for? That's not what the box top says, right? That's not what I signed up for. So we say. But you cannot deny the reality that when suffering in the church happened, power happened. When suffering happened, life exploded. Next one, part of this passage, also in the same verse. John tells the Christians in Smyrna, if you remain faithful, even when facing death, I will give you the crown of victory, of life. It was like the victor's crown they got at the Olympic Games. It was like a gold medal. You, you know what John's saying here? What Jesus is saying? If you remain faithful even when facing, facing death, you will be fully alive. You'll be more alive than you ever imagined it was possible. And again, the question is, can you, can you drink that cup? And no, let's not go invite persecution by doing something stupid or jerky to get somebody mad at you and say it's all because of Jesus. And no, I don't think the country's going to turn to some kind of weird oppressive state in the next two weeks. or But let's just, it's a reality that Jesus said will happen and can happen. And who knows where some of us may end up in the world or what the world may end up doing. We don't know. And it's not about trying to figure out and guess who, who, and who the Antichrist is. And Antichrist has been 50,000 different people throughout history. We don't know. We don't know. I'm going to finish uh, with a story. True story, actually, by a man named Polycarp. Interesting enough, Polycarp was the bishop of Smyrna, same town. Polycarp would have been about 26 years old when John wrote the letter to the church of Smyrna. How many of you are 25, 26 years old? All right. That's about your age. John was about that age. He would have been probably sitting in some assembly where this was read to them. Don't be afraid of what you're about to suffer. And if you remain faithful to the point of death, you'll, you'll get the crown of life. You'll be fully alive. 26-year-old Smyrna, or Polycarp. All right. As a side note, I always wonder what kind of nicknames people have with Polycarp. They call him Poly or Carp. I don't know. Anyway, you think about old, old ancient names. They had nicknames. They had nicknames. All right. So Polycarp. When Polycarp, and, and we, most scholars believe that Polycarp knew John personally and had been discipled by him to some degree. All right. When Polycarp was 40, 15, 14 years later, he became the bishop of Smyrna, which in that case meant he was the spiritual leader of the church in this town. And everything you read about Polycarp, he was a good, godly, bold, loving, compassionate, kind, lover of the truth. He, didn't, he wasn't afraid to confront theological error, but at the same time, he loved his people. And they knew that. Well, fast forward. Now Polycarp's 86 years old. The year is 156 AD. There'd been some persecution probably in Smyrna. We don't know all the details. But I'm sure Polycarp knew the letters from John to his church and the other churches. He probably could have recited this passage by memory because he'd, he'd, been, he'd known this for 60 years. This had been written. So one particular pagan festival in Smyrna, uh, just for entertainment, they begin to throw some Christians to wild animals. 
And the, and the crowd, and you've seen movies and depictions, and the, the crowd is just, they're angry because the Christians are way too content and at peace when they're getting killed. They get angry because they wanted to see panic and fear and all this stuff. And the Christians just kind of almost lay down in front of the animals. And they start shouting, the crowd starts shouting, away with the atheists. See, because they believed, not only the Romans, or the, the, the Greeks, the Gentiles, but also the Jewish non-followers of Jesus, they called the Christians atheists. Because they said what we were doing was, we would not sacrifice to their gods. We wouldn't live life their way. So we were the atheists. Away with the atheists. And then they started shouting, bring on Polycarp, bring on Polycarp, bring on Polycarp. In other words, we want to go for the top dog. We want to see him die. Polycarp goes on the run. He has a dream. In his dream, his pillow... This is, this is all documented by eyewitnesses of Smyrna, and there's ancient documents to support all this. He has a dream where his pillow catches on fire, and he wakes up and he tells his friends with him, I will be burned alive. That's what I believe God was telling me. So Smyrna goes... Polycarp goes to this farmhouse to hide out and they realize that the uh, authorities are on their trail so he goes to a different farmhouse. The authorities find some slave boys that know where Polycarp is and they torture one of the slave boys so they tell him where Polycarp is. They go to that other farmhouse. Polycarp's sleeping there. His friends tell him, hey, they, we, we're busted. Here they come. Let's get out of here. And Polycarp says, no. Let this be God's will. And so the, the soldiers get there and they ask for Polycarp. Polycarp comes into the room. Soldiers are blown away by, why are we trying to get this 86-year-old kind, gentle man? They were confused. And Polycarp says, tell, tells the servants in the house, hey, feed these soldiers. Give them as much food and drink as they want. Let's have a big meal with them. And these soldiers, they're like confused. And then Polycarp says, I will go with you, but will you please give me one hour to pray? So they oblige. He prays for two hours. Close enough by, they could hear him, and some of the soldiers start breaking down because they're like, why, why are we doing this? They finally get Polycarp. And again, Polycarp was a good man, ordinary guy, just like a lot of us, but he loved Jesus, and he knew what John had said, through, Jesus said through John. He gets there and he rides back in a carriage with some authorities and they say, come on, Polycarp, what's the big deal? Just say Caesar is Lord. That's all you have to say. Honor Caesar. Say Caesar is Lord. That's all you have to say. And they kept arguing with him and he finally said, I'm not going to do what you asked me to do. They push him out of the carriage. 86-year-old man falls on the ground. Of course, they have soldiers that they grab him, take him to the arena. And uh, he gets in the arena and they said to him... Uh, the mayor or whoever was, whoever was in charge of the game say to him, Polycarp, this is stupid. You're an old man. Just offer a little pinch of incense and sacrifice. To it's all we're asking. A pinch. A pinch of, of incense. Just offer that. To, that's all you have to do. And Polycarp looks at the arena full of maddening people who are wanting him to die. And he says to them, away with the atheists. He turned it back on them. They get a little more angry, of course. And this is an 86-year-old, kind, gentle, but strong, powerful, fully alive man. And then they said, okay, we're going to bring the wild beast. You still have time. And he goes, 
bring them on. And I didn't mention this, but as he was walking into the Colosseum, his followers, eyewitness followers of Jesus, all heard this voice, an audible voice say, Polycarp, play the man. Stand up, kind of play the man. That was what they heard. Polycarp, play the man. In other words, walk in there, boldness and strength and courage because you are fully alive at this moment. And they heard a voice say that. So Polycarp says, yeah, bring on the beast. And it makes him so mad. Well, okay, because they wanted him to fight it. They want to see the fight, right? And they said, no, he said, no, go bring it on. They said, okay, we're going to burn you then. He's like, okay, let's go do that. And again, this is a 86-year-old man just totally at peace. And they take him where they're going to burn him. The crowd just, they said the crowd went kind of wild into town getting all the wood they can because they really wanted to see this happen. And they're getting ready to nail Polycarp's hands to the post where they're going to burn him. He says, you don't need to nail me. I'm not, I'm not going anywhere. I'm not going anywhere. And it said they then just tied him up and then they lit a fire and they said that the fire enveloped him but didn't burn him right away. And again, this is historical accounts. Some people might say, well, there's enough veracity to the, de- the accounts. They said this is probably what happened. And they said there was an aroma from his body that was like incense. And the, and the guy and the soldiers in charge were so mad, one of them finally just stabbed Polycarp. Go to the next picture. This is kind of a famous icon uh, Ship, go to the next one. Famous icon, um, famous painting. And then he dies, and um, he becomes a hero to the Christians in Smyrna. And apart from Stephen, this is one of the first well-known martyrdoms of history. And, and I have a new hero myself. I, I read this stuff, and I thought, wow. No, do, do I want to try to move to a country where I'm going to get burned and killed? No, I don't want that. But I admire and I love the strength of this man. And how do we become the kind of women and men that have that kind of strength? How do we raise our children to have that kind of strength of faith? Think about it that way, parents. How do you raise your kids to be polycarps? Not theologians, but intense, passionate, strong lovers of God. And again, the promise over and over... And the theme over and over in Scripture is where there is the suffering of God's people, the power of the Holy Spirit is absolutely unleashed. Can we drink the cup? Yes, we can. But Jesus, we need you to do that. And again, I don't know your stories. I don't know your stories in your past. I don't know your stories in your future. But know that when that, if and when that ever happens in any degree, the Holy Spirit will be with you in a way that will be indescribable to those of us who have never suffered that kind of way. Finally, we're going to close. We did it a couple weeks ago. Just the passage in Revelation that John writes later. You know, and they overcame. They were Nikes. They were victorious. They were the victors. Because the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. Because there was a life from Jesus. There was something that Jesus did that opened up a whole new way of life and a reality inside of them. And they became those kind of people. So we take communion every week at Exodus. And not to be overly dramatic or whatever, but... Um, we don't drink out of the cup just because we just dip it in. But when you dip it in and, and, and put the bread in your mouth, I want you to think of the phrase and the question that Jesus asked, can, can you drink the cup? If I were to ask you, says Jesus, to endure persecution in small ways in your office or neighborhood, 
or in large ways with your life someday or physical pain, will you drink the cup? Can you? Will you? And we, we do this because what we're saying is, I can't unless you're in me, Jesus. If you lead me there and you empower me at that moment, I will. So here's how we do it at Exodus. We'll sing a few more songs. We'll have people at each of the aisles, and they'll have bread, and they'll have a cup of juice. They'll offer you bread, tear it off. Offer you the cup, dip it in. Most people eat it there. Some take it back to their seat. You can do whatever you want to do. Um, but most people just eat it right here. And uh, we come up as we're singing. We're not dismissed by rows. Anybody's welcome who would call themselves a follower of Jesus um, without any areas where you're straight-arming Jesus and resisting him. All right, same time over there in the room that says prayer, there are people there who can pray for you about anything. Um, so let me pray, and then we'll take. And Jesus, thank you that you gave yourself, that you were the first one down the road of suffering to the degree that you, uh, you went the full, you drank the cup to the fullest dregs. You drank it all. And then you had power beyond what we ever imagined. And Jesus, we thank you that you did that for us and you opened up that way to become uh, fully alive for us that we now can follow in your footsteps. And, uh, and we want to see you, Jesus. We do want to see you. We want you to reveal yourself to us. And we thank you for opening the door. And we ask this all in Christ's name. Amen.